TikTok. Hi. Welcome to another episode of Knock Knock I with me, Dr. Glockham Flecken. So this is uh, the, the time every week when I get to talk about eyeballs as much as I want. And it's it's a wonderful thing. Uh, today, actually, I'm recording this on a Tuesday. I was, uh, uh, nor- I'm normally in clinic. So people don't know this because they, they just see me recording podcasts and skits and posting on social media all the time. Uh, but I do actually practice medicine four days a week, which is full time for an ophthalmologist, obviously. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I see patients. I'm in clinic. I'm in surgery. Uh, I do like, you know, 12 to 15 cataract surgeries every week. Uh, and so life is busy cause I'm also doing all this other stuff too. Um, and normally I'm in clinic today, but for some reason that I have yet to figure out, I took today off like months ago. I just have this day off and I was like, well, I just learned about this on Friday. What am I going to do with this day? I know what I'll do. I'll just record things. So I'm doing a couple episodes of knock, knock. I, I'm, uh, probably going to uh, film a skit later. Uh, it was, uh, I'm going to write some character bios. We're fleshing out our website. We have all, I have all the different characters listed there and I need to add some more, uh, uh, because I got some, we got some professional headshots of some of the other characters, which is a, a an interesting thing to like pay someone to do. And you'd go in and dress up as a an orthopedic surgeon and have someone take photos of you. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, they didn't ask many questions, but it turned out all right. So I got to write some character bios. I don't know. We'll see what else I can fit into today. But today, right now, we got another another fascinating episode of Knock Knock Hi, Knock Knock I Knock Knock I. Um, all right. So before we get into our case for today and our topic, uh, I I wanted to address one thing just about the eye exam because a lot of people the the eye exam is intimidating. Uh, because you kind of, especially those of us in medicine, we kind of learn about it in med school or in training and, uh, uh, but not really because we're, we're learning it usually from people who also don't really know it that well. Not many people outside of ophthalmology were actually taught an eye exam by an ophthalmologist. So we're not going to go through the whole eye exam today. Uh, but I'm going to be talking about vision a lot just throughout these episodes because most of these diseases, most of the things I'm talking about affect your vision. Uh, so I want to talk about testing vision, checking vision. Um, so so let's go over this because there's a few things that people don't realize. Number one, if you're going to check a patient's vision, always ask first if they wear glasses or contacts. If they have those things with them, have them put them on, all right? Put it in your contacts if possible, unless they're having like eye pain or something uh, and they took them out for a reason. But if they have glasses, for sure, have them put the glasses on because we want them to have their best possible vision uh, uh, while checking their vision. Uh, and so if they don't have the glasses or contacts, you do the best you can. So most people, most places will have a chart. So you put the chart in front of them or whatever you have. Sometimes you just have a near vision card that has all the chart on it. That's fine too. Uh, But if you're using a near card, please don't put a near card in front of like someone who's 60 years old without reading glasses. That's not fair. 
Uh, it's 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 mean. They you, you don't understand. Our, the ciliary muscles in our eyes do not have the ability to accommodate past the age of about 50. So it's uh, uh, they need reading glasses. So I encourage anybody working in an urgent care or an emergency department or really any medical office whatsoever, have a pair of reading glasses lying around. Just just for this specific occasion, you know, add that to your armamentarium along with a stethoscope and the other things that you use to examine patients. Um, so they're wearing their glasses if possible, and then you're checking each eye separately, one at a time. All right, that's very important. All right, cover an eye. You're checking each eye separately. May sound obvious, but you'd be surprised. Um and then you just have them, what I do is I say, like, what's the smallest line you can read on the chart? That's the first thing I say. And to see how far down they go, all right? I always push people a little bit. It's like, you can, you can, I think you can do better than that. Especially if someone reads off FCBDE. That's 2040, by the way. See, I have it memorized because I do this all the time. But I please don't memorize your, your reading chart to try to trick people, by the way. That happens. Sorry. Right. Don't, don't. I know you're, you're all smart. You can memorize the reading chart, uh, the vision chart, uh, but it's, it's not helpful to us. So the patient reads off, they cover an eye, they're, they're, you're checking your left eye, FZBDE. I know if you can read it that fast, then you can read lower than that. So I always encourage patients, all right, I know you can do, you can do better than this. All right, go lower, you know, 2025, 20, 2020. If the patient reads the 2020 line, you're golden. You're done. All right, that's it. Perfect vision. All right, we don't need any more of that. All right, we know the patient sees well. Go on to the other eye. If the patient says, oh, I can't, I, I can't see anything, ask if they can read the big letter at the top of the chart. That's 2200 or 2400, depending on the chart. If the patient cannot read that letter, now you're getting into more like serious vision deficits, all right? There can be a lot of reasons for that, obviously, but you know, okay, there's there's something going on here. And so, um, but a, a lot of people will stop there. I'll, I'll get phone calls and be like, uh, well, I checked vision. Good. You always check vision whenever you're calling an ophthalmologist, before you call an ophthalmologist. Check the vision. Patient can't read the big E. Well, my next question is always, okay, what, what can the patient read? Because there's more vision. There's more assessment that you can do that's very easy to do that would be helpful for me. So if the patient can't read the big E, then you go to count fingers. You hold up fingers in front of the patient. You can start up, start way back here. All right, hold up two, three, you know, what can you read? And then you slowly march it forward if they can't see it. And you see how, so you can, I'll document, a patient can count fingers at three feet or count fingers at six feet, something like that. If the patient cannot count fingers, don't stop there, keep going. You go to hand motion, that's what you do. So a patient can't count your fingers. Can you see my my hand in front of your face? That's what you you start at, start back here, then you move start like five feet away, then you slowly move forward until they can see your hand moving. Have them tell you which direction the hand is moving, so that you know for sure that they can see your hand moving. If the patient cannot see your hand moving, then you move to light perception. So you find the brightest light you can wherever you're working and you shine that light directly in front of that patient's eye. All right, if the patient cannot see that light, 
first make sure you're not trying to examine a prosthetic eye. All right? It's happened to me. I've done that. It's very embarrassing, but the patient finds it hilarious. All right? I have been fooled by patients before. They love doing that, which I totally encourage uh, because it's a, it's honestly, a, it's a, it's a pretty good little prank there. All right. Um, and so <laughs> as long as it's, if it's a real eye, you shine that light and find out if they can see that light. If a patient that you're seeing is either light perception where they only can see that light, they can't see hands, they can't see fingers, they can't see the chart. They can only see light or they can't see that light at all. Now you're getting into pants patient territory. All right. You need to call an ophthalmologist or eye doctor or anybody, whoever you can, with eyeball expertise because there is something serious going on. There's very few things in ophthalmology that cause that level of vision loss. Very few things that cause no light perception vision loss. In fact, I had a, I had a question uh, from at Fioritic, Fioritic who said, how does open globe lead to no light perception? That's something that I mentioned in the open globe episode. Uh, that uh, That's a classic thing. Finding with severe open globes is no light perception. It's on the differential diagnosis. It's the, the list of possibilities of someone that comes in with no light perception vision, open globe. Other things, giant salarteritis, bad chemical injuries, uh, uh, open um, or angle closure glaucoma, endophthalmitis, all of these things can potentially cause no light perception vision, which is why they are all pants patients, right? We haven't talked about giant cell arteritis. We'll get to that in a future episode. Uh, so serious things. All right. You have that level of vision loss. You got to get someone on the phone. I'm putting my pants on. I'm coming to see that patient right away. Um, and so that's vision, that, that is vision testing in a nutshell, there's little things that we'll talk about at different times. There's pinhole testing, which is another thing you can do. Uh, there's optokinetic nystagmus. There's all kinds of things. But I have, I have to give you guys little like aliquots of, of, of eyeball like testing and, and the things. I don't want to scare you off. I, it's like, I feel like you're little, like little kittens that I, I need to like. Like, uh, just bring into the world of eyeballs a little bit slowly. Just, just a little, because this is a marathon. It's not a sprint, you guys. All right, we're doing this every week. All right, I'm going to get to all the different eyeball things. We just, we got to take it slow. We're in this together. Uh, and uh, I don't, I, I, I want to keep doing this. I don't want to scare you off with being too technical right away. We'll get there. And then eventually you'll all be board certified ophthalmologists. <laughs> That's the goal here. All right, so let's get to our um, our case for today. So we have a 28-year-old male playing with his 12-month-old daughter. And for no reason in particular, that little baby stuck her finger right in dad's eye during playtime. No reason why. She just did it, resulting in immediate pain, tearing, can't open the eye, screaming pain. And so he goes in to see the emergency physician, goes into emergency. So you could probably guess what this is. This is a corneal abrasion. We're talking corneal abrasions today, you guys. Now, this is a very simple, straightforward topic. In some ways, there's a few things we're going to talk about that are actually a little bit controversial, which uh, you may not think would be the case with something as straightforward as a corneal abrasion. But there is some stuff to discuss, and it's also very common. I'm going to do some common things. 
I'm going to do some not so common things. All right. We're going to get a smorgasbord of, of eyeball stuff. All right. Over the course of the next few months. Uh, but this is one of those common things. I'm sure a lot of you that are watching and listening to this have, have had a corneal abrasion and you're probably thinking, Oh man, that was painful. Yes, it is. Let me tell you why. The cornea is the most sensitive part of the body. Like by far the, the amount of nerves in the cornea. And I think I mentioned this in a previous episode. It's why cornea stuff is so painful. It's why corneal abrasion, because what a corneal abrasion entails is the cornea, which is by the way, that clear front covering of the eyeball, it's translucent. So it allows all the light to come in. And actually the cornea is uh, the, the, the biggest refractor of light. So that goes into your glasses prescription. This is why you hear people with astigmatism because the cornea is a little bit misshapen or keratoconus, another topic we'll discuss down the road uh, where you have an irregularity of the corneal curvature. So the cornea affects a lot of things, but it's it's really important for your vision. And it's totally clear. And it has a front layer of cells called the epithelium. What a corneal abrasion is, is you basically scratch off that top layer of cells. You just scratch off that epithelium, leaving the underlying layers below. And the cornea, the body does not like that. It's exquisitely painful very painful. Um, and, uh, so if you were to examine somebody with a corneal abrasion, this is the way it works. Uh, well, first thing you do is try to check vision. It's very difficult. Uh, and so, because the patients are in a lot of pain, they're screaming there, it's like 10 out of 10 pain. And, um, and, and so to get the eye to open up, you put a little topical anesthetic. This is what will happen in, in the eye clinic or the emergency department. Um, and so you pull a topical anesthetic, which immediately deadens the eye. All right. You can't feel it anymore. It takes that 10 out of 10 pain and reduces it to zero almost immediately. Very few things can do that. And this will be important later in this discussion. So we relieve the pain. The topical anesthetic allows you to open your eye. We'll check your vision. Vision will be a little bit blurry, but not too bad. All right. Sometimes patients are actually still 20, 20 because it's a minor injury, despite how painful it is. So we'll check the vision. We'll get like 20-20, maybe 20-40, but you know, not too bad, a little bit blurry. The patient's usually pretty light sensitive as well, uh, but the drops definitely help. And then what we'll do is we'll put uh, fluorescein on the eye. So fluorescein is, a, is basically a little chemical, um, like a little dye, onto the eye that uh, fluoresces. It, it lights up when you shine a cobalt blue filtered light. It's a little blue light. They have them on the slit lamp. They have them on, there's different devices. You can buy a pin light that, that's just cobalt blue. It has a cobalt blue filter on it. You shine it on that fluorescein, it'll light up green. And um, if the cornea lights up, then that's when you know you have a corneal abrasion or something wrong with the cornea. But that's what a corneal abrasion will look like under a cobalt blue light. There'll be this huge patch of green that just stays there uh, because that cobalt blue, that, sorry, that fluorescein will stain the underlying tissue beneath the corneal epithelium. So you get that, that whole thing lit up. Very easy, very straightforward, especially with the, the, with the known history of a small child scratching the cornea. Uh, which is a very common mechanism for this type of injury. Uh, so 
So as soon as you see that, as soon as you see that fluorescein, you know you got your diagnosis. All right, corneal abrasion. Then what? All right, well, this, sorry to say, is not a pants patient. All right, this is and not even a call your ophthalmologist on call in the middle of the night type of patient. This is something that emergency physicians, because a lot of these will come into the emergency, even though it's not technically like a true emergency, it's scary for the patient because it's so painful. Most people have never experienced that type of pain before. Uh, and so it, it, it's their eyes. Like, I'm going blind. What's happening here? And so it scares people. So they come into the emergency department. Totally reasonable. Absolutely reasonable because you don't know. The average person doesn't know what this is. And so, um, uh, but it is not uh, something that's vision threatening. Uh, it's it's painful, but it's it's not something that needs any kind of surgical treatment. So this is not something that emergency physicians will typically wake an ophthalmologist up in the middle of the night to see. This is a follow-up next clinic day type of patient. All right, so I will see this patient Monday morning, or if it happens on a weeknight, we'll see them you know first first thing in the morning uh, to take a look. And so what happens because the patient's in all this pain? Well, therein lies the controversy because I've heard so many stories. Patients have a corneal abrasion. They get this topical anesthetic. They get diagnosed with a corneal abrasion. They leave the emergency department. The topical anesthesia wears off and the patient is back to 10 out of 10 pain. Terrible. And then what happens? They turn around, go right back into the emergency department. And so what do you do? How do you make these people comfortable? Well, we do different things in ophthalmology versus emergency medicine. And that's where the controversy comes up. So let me tell you how this would work in ophthalmology. Patient comes into my clinic with a corneal abrasion. If it's large enough, the patient's in a lot of pain, uh, I will put on what's called a bandage contact lens. It's a specialty contact lens that's a little bit thinner uh, that will go on the surface of the eye and just act as a Band-Aid. That's what it is. It's a bandage contact lens. It's a Band-Aid. You're covering the cornea so that the, the eyelid doesn't constantly rub up against this scratch causing all this pain. And it doesn't completely take away the pain, but it makes it manageable. It, it, it knocks it down like 90%. Most patients do just fine, a little bit of scratchiness, but they do just fine. And fortunately, the cornea heals extremely quickly. So I tell patients, you know, the first 24 hours, it's going to be rough. It's going to be painful. All right. This bandaged lens will help take care of that pain, but it's still going to be pain, a little bit scratchy. But then after 24 hours, it's going to be much better. All right. And that's, that's how it goes. And that's because we have a supply of these bandaged contact lenses. Are you going to get that in, in, in our emergency departments or urgent care centers going to stock bandage contact lenses? No. Like, we wouldn't really expect them to do that because they don't, they're not used to handling those types of things. That's just not, that's, it's, it's, they're probably already strapped for cash, you know, you know, they're, they're, and so they're not going to, you know, spend money on inventory of bandage contact lenses. That, that's, that's just not going to happen. So what can they do? Well, what emergency physicians, uh, they, what they like to do is, is prescribe or give out topical anesthetic. And that's the controversy, the use of topical anesthetic for corneal abrasions. 
Now, for in the world of ophthalmology, this is not even something we talk about, right? Because we don't need to. We have these bandage contact lenses that will take away the pain. Why do we need to prescribe topical anesthetic? And for a long time, even to this day, the major, vast majority of ophthalmologists will say, no, you never give out topical anesthetic. Why? That's based on case reports from decades ago of people most likely either being prescribed a bottle of topical anesthetic or just stealing a bottle of topical anesthetic. Because remember, this is a, a medication, this topical anesthetic that will immediately take pain from 10 out of 10 down to zero out of 10. Very few things in medicine do that. So you can imagine how alluring it would be to be in a hospital room and you see this bottle of eye drops right there. It's, it's right there on the counter. And it's like, that healed me. Of course, I, I want that thing. And then they say, no, we're not, we can't give you that. And so people take it. I get it. I wouldn't want to be in pain either. And, and so, but in ophthalmology, we've, we've railed against this, saying you can't never do this, never give this out, protect this under, all, you know, under lock and key. Patients cannot have topical anesthetic because we know that there are uh, case reports. We know what happens when patients will take, use up an entire bottle of topical anesthetic. They come back into clinic with a melting eye. Topical anesthetic will kill the nerves over time we're talking a week of using a, in a, a bottle, by the way, a, a, those typical bottles, about 10 mils, typically, they have about 200 to 300 drops in them. That's a lot of topical anesthetic. One drop totally takes away your pain for about 20 minutes. So 200 drops, that'll last for a while. So these case reports, again, decades old, of patients coming in after using an entire bottle of topical anesthetic and their cornea is scarred over it's, it's thinning out, which means it's melting uh, because these drops were not meant to be used for that long. Uh, and so that's, that's the genesis of this thought in ophthalmology that you never use topical anesthetic. But here we have people on the emergency medicine side. That's easy for us to say because people on the emergency medicine side, what do they have? They, they have nothing else. They don't have those contact lenses. They, what can they give a patient even the strongest oral pain medicines, opioids, they don't really touch this type of pain. Uh, certainly Tylenol and ibuprofen, those, those things don't. So what do they have? And so they have been a little bit more persistent in the emergency medicine side of things on using topical anesthetic. And I used to be like all the other ophthalmologists. I'd be like, what are you doing? This is silly. It's gotten me into numerous Twitter arguments uh, which uh, I've said before is the, the, the worst use of your time is to get in arguments on Twitter. Um, X, whatever, sorry. Uh, so, but my thinking has changed because there has been, as opposed to ophthalmology literature, which why would we even study this? Because we never use it. We never do this. The emergency medicine literature, they've actually done some studies within the past decade looking at the use of a, a 24 hours worth of topical anesthetic to see, is it safe? Because as we all know, a corneal, a cor sorry, a corneal abrasion, the pain is most severe for 24 hours. And then it gets dramatically better because the cornea heals very quickly. So 
what happens when you just give a short course of topical anesthetic. And the results were great. Patients didn't come in with melting eyes. They didn't come back to the emergency department. They still followed up with their eye doctor. Everything was fine. There were no long-term effects, deleterious effects. And so this really, and it's a fairly good study, a good number of patients. Uh, This has changed my opinion of this. And so now, because I think we, you know, obviously we need to pay attention to literature, but uh, we also need to be less adversarial, I think, with each other, uh, especially with arguments with regard to to standard of care and things. So I've come around a little bit. And now I will acknowledge that, yeah, 24 hours worth of drops of topical anesthetic for corneal abrasion is likely safe. We have no reason to think it's not. The data does not suggest that it's unsafe. Um, in fact, it, it, it shows that it, that it is safe. And so now, instead of saying, no, you can't ever do this, don't do this, on behalf of the entire field of ophthalmology, this is egregious. No, I don't say any of that stuff. Now, I just tell people, if you're going to do this, if you are going to prescribe topical anesthetic, uh, it has to be only 24 hours worth. That means figuring out a way, and you just got to figure out how to do this. Either, you know, have your pharmacy or, uh, you know, work with your local pharmacy to have them uh, just give out 20 to 30 drops. But that's the way you have to do it. Or do it yourself. Put it in some kind of eyedropper bottle that you have, uh, if you can find one, and actually like put out 20 to 30 individual drops into a bottle and you give that to the patient because it's never okay to give a full bottle of, of tetracaine or preparacaine because patients will use up that whole thing because this is magical medicine. It totally takes away that horrible, horrible pain. And so that's the big caveat. That's actually the first caveat. If, you, if you're going to do this, it has to be only that amount, only 24 hours worth, which is about 20 to 30 drops. The other thing is you have to make sure you're just dealing with a corneal abrasion. Other things can look like a corneal abrasion. Herpetic eye disease, herpes, can look like a corneal abrasion sometimes. Severe dry eye can look like a corneal abrasion sometimes. So pay attention to the mechanism of injury. In this case, the 28-year-old, 12-year-old daughter, uh, sorry, 12-month-old daughter stuck her finger in, scratched it, immediate pain, classic corneal abrasion story. It looks like a corneal abrasion. That's what you have. So you give the the short course of preparacaine. Uh, so you have to be absolutely certain in the diagnosis. That's my diatribe. That's my, uh, honestly, it's, I, I think it's important for us to be able to evolve our thinking on things. Uh, it's okay if we're wrong. Uh, and then, and, and then, but we change, change course and learn from each other. Because we can, that's, that's something that specialties I think have a problem with is listening to other specialties uh, uh, who do things maybe a little bit differently. And so I, I think we probably need more of that in medicine. Uh, okay, so that's the controversy. So my, 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 what I do for corneal abrasions is I give, I put a bandage contact lens and always prescribe a topical anesthetic. You're going to get, sorry, always, always prescribe a topical antibiotic. All right, because what you're doing is you're preventing a secondary infection. All right, we got to keep going. I'm, I'm talking, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry that I had to talk that long about corneal abrasions, you guys, but I, I think it's, it's important for healthcare workers to, to hear about this, but also patients who come in with a corneal abrasion to, to understand what's happening to their eye. Uh, very rarely, 
uh, the, the abrasion won't heal correctly. And you end up with what are called recurrent erosions where you wake up every morning and you're because that corneal epithelium, that top layer hasn't fully healed down onto the underlying tissue that the eye, when you blink, like when you wake up in the morning, this is usually what happens. You wake up in the morning, your eyes open and your eyelid will just reopen that abrasion, will rip those nascent cells right off open up the scratch again, and you're left with another corneal abrasion. And that happens every morning. That's really a, um, that, that can happen with, with traumatic abrasions like this. And that requires a surgery. It's actually kind of interesting. What we'll do is basically take patients to the operating room and we will manually resurface their cornea. I will remove all that top layer of epithelium that's not healing and then what I do is I take a little 30-gauge needle and just put little tiny needle tracks around the cornea in the area. It's called micropuncture. Little tiny needle pokes and not, not, not obviously going all the way through, just little right there on the surface. It just kind of roughs up that underlying tissue and allows the cornea to heal more firmly down onto the onto the Bowman's layer, which is the below the epithelium on the cornea, and just gives a more adherent healing process. But that doesn't happen very often. Most 99% of corneal abrasions, they heal up just fine within a couple of days, and you're okay. That's corneal abrasions. This one's going a little bit long. I get fired up about corneal abrasions, you guys. Oh, ophthalmologists are somewhat I, I am a nerd after all I, I this this is you know eyeball stuff I, I I get animated I get into it so here is your don't do that eyeball tip of the week your don't do that eyeball tip of the week I actually have two tips wear safety glasses while playing with children oh how hard is this you guys when you're playing with your small child wear your safety glasses obviously I'm kidding kind of. I just, you're going to hear me talk about safety glasses a lot. Honestly, it is kind of a joking thing, but really, I I, I kind of think, and this may just be the years of, of, of uh, experience speaking, maybe we should all be wearing some kind of eye covering at all times. Safety glasses, motorcycle helmet, astronaut helmet. I, I don't know, whatever it is, uh, it, your call. Just glasses, I'll take it. But man, so many things. Uh, just uh, this past week, I've, I saw two. Uh, one thing we see a lot in Oregon is uh, 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 gardening injuries. You know how many times I've seen people come in who got whacked with a branch from a tree? Happens all the time. All the time. So I, I'm like this close to just recommending that everybody wear safety glasses at all times. All right, your ophthalmology fun fact. Fun fact, I did some research for this one because I was interested myself. Your ophthalmology fun fact has to do with vision testing for driving. Most states, well, all states, all states do have a vi some kind of vision assessment that allows you to get your license. And so here's your fun fact. Can you guess... This is like trivia slash fun fact. Can you guess which state has the, the uh, most lenient vision requirements to get a license? Some of you may guess it. Let me know. Let me know in the comments if you get this right, if you can guess. Have a state in your mind 
What is it? All right, here's here's the answer. Oklahoma. Oklahoma has the most lax vision testing requirements for driving. Here's and I hope this makes you a little bit scared of driving in Oklahoma because we all need to be a little bit more defensive in our driving. Um, but uh, um, in Oklahoma, all you have to have is 2100 vision in your better seeing eye. So your better seeing eye. That means that one eye can have no vision at all. Like you can like not have an eye, which is... Yeah, people can you can drive with one eye. Uh, at a later episode, we're going to talk about um, how you can still have depth perception with just one eye. There's monocular clues to depth perception. We'll talk about that. Uh, but yes, in your better seeing eye in Oklahoma, you only have to see twenty one hundred. That's not great vision. You also the vast, I think almost all the states now have a peripheral peripheral field testing requirement as well. They check to make sure you can see something in your peripheral vision. Uh, So Oklahoma also has a very lax peripheral field vision testing. It's only 70 degrees horizontally. Now that probably doesn't give you much perspective, but um, uh, most states are in like the 120 range. So you only have to have a fairly narrow field of view and 2100 vision in, in one eye to be able to get um, uh, a license. And now there are, you can put restrictions on there, especially as an eye doctor or any kind of doctor. If you're like, oh, I know this patient should not be driving. Technically, they meet the requirements, but I don't want them to drive at night. You can specify that as a physician. I have had to recommend that people get their license taken away. That's always a tough conversation. Uh, we can talk about that when we uh, discuss homonymous hemianopia or the effects of stroke. Uh, that's always a really challenging conversation. But anyway, that's your ophthalmology. Fun, not so fun, kind of frightening. Uh, and Oklahoma, you know, some states are not much better. I think Missouri is pretty bad. Um, Iowa for a while was bad, but I think they changed it. Some states are like, your better seeing eye has to be 2040. That's much more reasonable. You can see pretty well with 2040 vision. 2100? Yeah, that's a bit of a stretch. So anyway, there you go. Okay, explain like I'm eight. Now it's time for explain like I'm eight, where I take a question from my eight-year-old. Sometimes it's my 11-year-old, but today it's my eight-year-old. And uh, we uh, uh, and I ex- explain it in words, in terms, and phrases that an eight-year-old can understand. Unfortunately, as I mentioned at the top, I am recording this on a weekday. My kids are in school, but I did have uh, her write down her question. So I'm just going to read her question now. So, how come when I look at a light and then I turn off the light, I can still see the light? That's a great question. I get that. I, you know, I, I actually, I get that from adults too. That's not just a kid question. I think a lot of people have noticed that. And you may just never know like why that happens. When you look at a bright light and then you look away, you can still see that light. That is called an after image, an after image. So an after image is basically your, your rods and cones that, that are your light-sensing cells in the back of your eye. They're in the retina, which is the very back part of the eye. Um, they 
get activated, right? There's this complicated process called visual phototransduction. So it's this chemical process. But because I'm trying to explain this in, in, in very common terms, um, the light comes in through the front of the eye, lands on the retina, and activates those, those cells, those rods and cones. And they are still activated for a while. So if you look at a bright enough light source, it's going to think about it as activating it just as much as possible. They are very 100% activated, right? So when you look away from that light in that same location in your visual field, so if you look at a light right in the center of your vision, you look away, then that, that light's going to stay there right in the center of your vision. It's because those rods and cones and that part of your retina are still activated. And it takes some time for that chemical process to resolve in those rods and cones to reset. So it's called an after image. You still see it because that part of the retina is still activated. That's a great question. And then finally, uh, because we're getting a little, I told myself, you know, when I first started these, it was like, these are going to be 30 minute episodes. Now here we are, we're like 39 minutes in. So uh, I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, but I want to answer uh, 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 a question that came up about the eye floater episode. So I, I think it was last week we did retinal detachment, talked a little bit about floaters. Uh, but this is a question from Ned94717, who said, are there any ways to remove floaters safely? That is a great question. I don't think I answered that. There is a surgery that will remove floaters. It's called a vitrectomy. Because remember, floaters represent the little bits of your vitreous humor, which is that jelly that fills the back of your eye. Uh, as you get older, starting like in your 20s, typically, and then over time, you just develop more of these floaters, those little bits of vitreous that condense and just float around in your middle of your eye and are extremely annoying, and we all hate them, and they come up at the worst possible time, and then they take forever to go away, all this stuff. People ask me, how do you get rid of them? It's like, well, first of all, if I had like an eye drop or some easy way to get rid of them, I would be so rich. But I don't. I don't have, have an eye drop. Um, surgery will do it. You basically, you go and you physically suck out those floaters. Uh, it's actually a surgery that's done for retinal detachments and other things in the retina. So it's a very common retinal surgery, but it's a little risky because you are putting the eye through a surgery. You are risking infection, some complication, typically in an eye that is seeing perfectly fine. Because when you have floaters, there's really nothing wrong with your eye. You just have this annoying problem with floaters. And so it's not commonly done. I mean, the surgery itself is, is straightforward for the retina surgeon, but they it really it has to be a really debilitating case of floaters. Because again, you're taking an eye that's perfectly normal, that has this problem with floaters, that's also a normal problem, and then you're subjecting it to a surgery that has risk. And so you always, with any surgery, you're weighing the risks and benefits. And so the, 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 the benefit of getting rid of your floaters has to outweigh the potential risk of blindness, which is always a risk with any type of surgery on the eye. So that's the answer. Yes, you can remove floaters with surgery, but it is only done in a very small percentage of cases of patients that have very debilitating floaters. That's your answer. 
And that's our episode. That is Knock Knock High. Uh, I keep saying Knock Knock I for today. Thank you to my producers. And uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, give me your feedback. Give me your suggestions. Uh, give me, um, uh, I don't know, any, whatever else you want. I've gotten so many suggestions. we got some good stuff coming up. I'm going to talk about idiopathic intracranial hypertension coming up. Um, uh, uh, snow blindness. Oh, not snow blindness. Snow blindness would be a good one. Um, uh, visual snow is what I'm trying to. I had several people ask about visual snow, so we'll do that. Uh, maybe some pants patients. Uh, there's so many things. So many things. So until next time, everyone, we'll see you later. Goodbye.